0: Psalm 37 is uh, a long psalm, but the ideas of it are fairly simple. And the title I put for the message, Don't Envy the Weeds, you um, might wonder why I picked that. For one, I've been out in the backyard pulling a lot of them. And you look at the weeds, you don't have to do anything for them. They just come up on their own. Everything seems to go right. It rains, it's sunny, it's cloudy, it's dry. They're happy. Dandelions, the little one with the purple flower on it that I must have pulled two trash cans of out of the back area a few, probably a month ago. Uh, Thistles, all sorts of things. Weeds just spring up on their own. They do great. Nothing seems to touch them. Look at the very end of Psalm 37. Verse 35, I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Now, the native soil part aside, what I have in mind when I read that is a mulberry. you ever pulled a mulberry seedling out of the ground or tried? It's about this tall and the root is about this long. Let's say you're the, you know, the little annual plant that gets planted next to the mulberry tree, next to the dandelions, next to the thistles. You start to wonder why it's so easy for the weeds and why it's so hard for you. Or perhaps to make a different parallel, you're like one of the little Michigan wildflowers And you start out seemingly weak, small, and then after about three years, you wonder where they all came from because they succeed, they thrive. But at the outset, it doesn't look that way. It looks like the weeds are going to prevail, it looks like the good plants are going to die out. And so we become envious of them. We fret, verse 1 do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Um, climate's a little bit different in Israel. There are certainly times of year where it's very dry and things that were green die off. David says... Don't envy them, even though it looks like they're going to succeed. When God's time is right, they will wither and they will fade. That's true of a lot of the weeds in your backyard, too. They, they do great in the spring, and then come summertime, they burn and they wither. So all throughout this passage, we have this contrast. The righteous and the wicked. The wicked appear to be prospering, getting away with it all, strong, healthy, and happy. The righteous appear to be weak, question of whether they're going to make it alone. But as we go through the passage, we see both the responses of each, the characteristics of each, and the responses of each, and God's final assessment of both. What is the first thing that David says the people who know God ought to do? Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. When he says cultivate, he means you've got to work at it. You have to get the hoe out of the shed. You have to get the big thing with the discs out of the barn. You have to work at cultivating faithfulness. It's not something that's going to naturally come to us. What naturally comes to us, if we are like Jesus condemned the Pharisees of our father the devil until Christ transforms our lives, we lie. We are untrustworthy. We are unfaithful. And so we have to work at being faithful. But it is connected with trusting in the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All the the commands, admonitions of Scripture, we can't fulfill them In our own strength, trusting in ourselves, that sort of thing. We have to start by trusting in the Lord. We also not only trust in God, just sort of believe Him, follow Him, do what He says, but verse 4 says, Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes people read this verse and they're like, If I just give God what He wants, He'll give me everything that I want. That's not the point of this verse. There is a sense in which, as we delight in God, the desires of our heart are fulfilled, but it's at least in part because God is transforming those desires to be what he wants them to be. It doesn't mean that we can't want things. Sometimes we get in a spot where we think that it's really holy if we don't want anything. It's really holy if we just lose all sense of individuality. That's not really Christianity. That's sort of like a Far Eastern mysticism, the one gets swallowed up in the holistic mini-many the life force of the universe that's not christianity rather it is i am still an individual but i am under god's control i am having to choose to be obedient not just passively sitting by and saying god whatever you want to happen it's going to happen just let it happen and so we have to we have to walk this line between self sufficiency and the uh let go and let god i, I don't have to do anything There's a biblical tension there. You fulfill every responsibility God calls you to do, God will fulfill every promise that He has made. Obviously, the starting point for that is you have to know Christ as your Savior. I mean, that's not specifically in this passage. It does say trust in the Lord. And and as we know from the New Testament, trust in the Lord, we do so through Christ. That's the starting point, because we can't obey all the commands of God. We can't delight ourselves in Him. We can't commit our way to Him if we don't know Him. That's like saying, here's a random person on the street. Do you trust them? Do you delight in what pleases them? Do you um, commit your way to them? I mean, that'd be, depending on where you're walking, all that that'd be pretty foolish, right? But we have to know God. We have to have a relationship with him in order to do these things that are being talked about in these verses. But look at these, look at these confident statements. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will do it verse 6 he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday it's almost like you're 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 in the dark and everybody else is in the dark and there's this question of well how does everyone look in the light no one knows because it's dark god turns the lights on shines the light and the people that belong to him are righteous and wearing clean clothes and the people that don't belong to him are in their sin, filthy, trusting in themselves. The contrast doesn't show until God reveals it. And so we're sort of in that point where we, it may not be clear that we are right, that we are trusting in God as we should, but God's going to reveal it in His time. Verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. So I said it's not complete abandonment of self to God and not doing anything, but there is an element of resting. Sometimes we look at rest as a passive thing because we think of like falling asleep at night and you just sort of lay your head on the pillow and if your mind isn't full of a bunch of things you're thinking about, it just sort of sleep washes over you. But rest in the Lord is an active thing. It says to wait patiently for Him there's several kinds of waiting. There's a kind of waiting that says the person's going to be here at this time, and I have confidence they're going to be here at this time, and so I'm going to wait for them right here at this time. And then there's other kind of waiting that's like, I don't know if this guy even to show up like when you're waiting for somebody to show up off of Facebook or Craigslist, something like that, and you're not really sure that they're going to show up. had that happen earlier today, incidentally. Um, which kind of resting do you do in connection with God? Do you wait patiently for Him, or do you say, "You know what? I, I, I trust in Him, but I'm going to keep checking my watch. I'm going to keep, you know, making sure that you're, you're going to keep up your end of what you said you'll do." Are we resting in God the right way? And this goes back to what He said in verse one: "Do not fret." Verses seven and eight: "Do not fret." Verse eight, do not fret. I'm not talking about a guitar fret. It's talking about this worry, this being stirred up, this anxiousness. Don't worry because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Why do God's people often worry? Because it looks like I've given up all of the things I could have had in this world, and I'm not getting anything for it, and he hasn't given up any of those things, and he has everything. She has everything. God, when are you going to fulfill the promises that you've made to me? What does God say? Cease from anger and forsake wrath. We might think the solution is God's way isn't working. Let's live just like they do. And God says through David, cease from anger, forsake wrath. That's a good admonition. It's a good admonition to remember during rush hour. It's a good admonition to remember when people interrupt your plans or when things don't go the way that you want them to go. The solution is not, you messed up my order at the restaurant, you um, didn't do this thing I expect you to do, I'm going to behave just like any lost person would and and rage at you and scream at you and, and then I'll feel better. Don't respond like lost people do when it doesn't seem like God is keeping His promise. Instead, keep living the way God has called you to live. Why? Because the second half of verse 8, do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. Worry is a sin that we might easily think is not that big of a deal. It's a, it's a valid concern. It's an acceptable thinking through all the pros and cons. But when we worry, we cease to trust God. And when we cease to trust God, we trust in ourselves. And when we trust in ourselves, we sin. And so David is saying, don't live that way. Why? Because verse 9 evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. This theme is going to be picked up all throughout this passage. God's people fulfilled promises inherit keep the land. God's enemies cut off, punished, gone, forsaken, lose everything. But right here in this moment, it's like there's a curtain drawn over those two outcomes. And the question is are you going to trust that what God has said is true? Or are you going to want to pull the curtain back and check and say, all right, which way am I going to go? Which one is the way of faith? It's to say, God, you said it, you're going to do it. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You'll look carefully for his place and he will not be there, but the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Going back to the illustration of the weeds. Sometimes there's this whole spot full of weeds. The sun comes up. It gets to be the middle of summer. They're gone. You look at that, it's like a bare patch of dirt. They're gone. They've died off. You can't even figure out where exactly they were. That's the picture that God paints of the wicked. Verse 12, he describes the character of the wicked. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. It's almost like he's a rabid dog that can't be restrained. He's just trying to figure out, how can I bite him? How can I destroy him? How can I ruin him? That's what the character of the wicked is like. What's God's response? The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. This is what Psalm 2 says. The nations say, we are going to ascend to heaven, take it over, and rule for ourselves. And God says, really? I made you. You are as nothing. If I did not give you your next breath, you would not exist. You're going to overthrow me? And we say, well, how can God mock people? Sin is mockable. Sin is foolish. God sees this whole span, and he says, in light of what's happening over there, you saying you're going to succeed here is foolishness. And he gives us this little glimpse here, too, and he says, don't buy into their way of life thinking that it will be better, because that's where it ends up. The wicked draw the sword, bend the bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Who do the wicked oppose? The afflicted, the needy, the upright in conduct. The righteous. There's a bunch of synonyms that describe God's people. We don't want to think of ourselves as afflicted, needy, I mean, upright and righteous, sure, but afflicted and needy. We don't want to think of ourselves in those terms. We want to be the ones who are strong. We want to be the ones who deliver ourselves. This was Israel's problem all throughout their history. What did they keep doing? They kept saying, if I build the right alliance, have the right army, set things up the right way, I will be able to defeat the nations around me when they come against me, and maybe I don't need God all that much. And God kept reminding them over and over again, I can take 300 people and defeat the entire army of the Midianites. I cannot have any of you fight and make them destroy each other in front of your city gates. And then send a band of lepers to discover that you've won, even though you didn't know it. God doesn't need us to have victory. God will cast down the wicked in his time. So don't envy the wicked. At some level, we should pity them Uh, Second Timothy says this, end of chapter 2 I think, it says that we ought to consider that uh, God might have compassion on the wicked. Like I said a week or two back, the person who is giving you grief at work, mocking you for your faith, making your life difficult because you follow God. God could transform that person's life and they could be sitting with you in church someday. Can you both have a right response to the wickedness of people that that affronts God and say it's wrong, and at the same time a compassion that says, and I was wicked and God could save that person and that would be a good thing if he did. But if they don't turn, then what's said in this passage is going to be the end of it. Verse 16 This is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. We're like, no, it'd be better to have a lot and be righteous. But David says here, speaking on God's behalf rightly, says, if you have nothing by the world's standards, but you know Christ, that is more valuable than everything else. Or Jesus said it this way, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The arms of the wicked will be broken. Here's what they seem to have. Strength. Mighty army. God says their arms will be broken. Their swords will pierce them. Their bows will lie shattered on the ground. Don't envy them. In contrast, verse 18, or the end of verse 17, the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, their inheritance will be forever. That's a lot longer, right? Sometimes we think, you know, here's some person who lived in wickedness for 40, 50, 80 years and nothing touched them. God says to the righteous, their inheritance will be forever. Specifically, He's talking to his people, Israel, but there's enough passages in the New Testament to know that the same sort of promises have been made to us as God's people today, right? They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, in the days of famine they will have abundance, but the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastors. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. I think about... um, I was out in Washington Township the other day because I had to pick up more supplies for the cats and tractor supply had it cheap. So I was out there and I was driving and there was a spot where last year there were plants that were six feet tall in a field. This year it's mowed down, nothing there. If that had happened overnight, that's the sort of picture that we see here. They're like the glory of the pastures. You've got huge wildflowers, tall trees, whatever, and then somebody comes in and says, nope, and they wipe it out. That's the picture that we have of the wicked. We've seen in another glimpse of the character of the righteous versus the wicked. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. One of the aspects of the wrong character of the wicked person is this oppressing of the afflicted and needy, verse 14. And here in verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. They are always looking for ways to take advantage for themselves and not to be honest in the way that they do business or in the way that they conduct their lives. Verse 21, but the righteous is gracious and gives. This... um, This comes up again in verse 26, so I guess we'll talk about it then. Verse 22, Those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Again, you got that theme. Keep the land, cut off from the land. Verse 23, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Think about a little child. I think about Maggie. She holds our hand a little bit more now than she did in the past. Sometimes she stumbles. We're there to hold her hand and help her not to fall. That's the picture that we see in this verse. God cares for us, is there with us, not in a... And if you have this on your wall, fine, it's not a problem. The footsteps in the sand thing, you know, Jesus picked me up and carried me. There's a little bit of sentimentality there, but... There's a sense in which God is actually there even when we don't see him, along the same lines as that. The question is, who is the he that delights in his way? And as takes it, that God delights in our way. Certainly, there's other passages that says we should delight in God's way. But I think there is a sense in which God... We delight in the Lord and He delights in our delighting in Him, if that makes sense. Verse 25 and 26, I've been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or His descendants begging bread. All day long He is gracious and lends, and His descendants are a blessing. Sometimes God's people go hungry. That's true in Paul's life, right? He says so in Philippians 4. But the promise that God made to Israel was, as long as you follow me, I'm going to provide for you. And even when Paul went hungry, even when the Macedonian believers had hardly anything, even when the widow put her two coins in the offering and seemingly would have nothing for later on, there was a sense in which God was still there with them, taking care of them, watching over them. I'm not saying there's some sort of piety in giving away everything that you have, but there may be a lack of piety and godliness if we hang on to everything that we have too tightly. This is a great illustration to give to kids. Somebody gives you, depending on the age, 50 bucks, 500 bucks, 5,000, you know, if they're like 5 or 10 or 15, what are you going to do with it? Immediately, whole list of things they want to go buy with it. Whose money is it? It's God's. And there is the irony that often when we hang on to what we have, we don't have what we need. And when we give to God and His work, when we look for ways to meet the needs of those around us, God more than adequately provides for our needs. I'm not saying that's a promise. That's an observation, just like what David says here is an observation. And so, don't be foolish in what you do with your money, with your time, with your life. But recognize that the harder you hang on to it, the less control you really have. And look for opportunities to minister with all that you have. Because you're not going to take it with you anyway. And like we saw in Ecclesiastes, even if you leave all of it to your kids, they may waste it. So, do what good you can now because that's the opportunity of time in which you have to do it. Verse 27, Depart from evil and do good, so you'll abide forever. Again, there's these admonitions, um, the ones that we saw back at the beginning of the chapter. Trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, commit in the Lord, rest in the Lord. This is not so much... Our relationship with God, as it is the things that flow out of our relationship with God, depart from evil and do good. The Lord loves justice. Kind of the Micah 6, eight idea. What does God require of you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Those ideas are all sort of wrapped up together. God does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Again, preserved, cut off. Inheritance, no one left. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Here's another characteristic of the righteous. Verse 30, his mouth utters wisdom, his tongue speaks justice, the law of God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. The words that we speak reveal our hearts. They can be wise words, they can be words that reflect the justice and the character of God, or they can be foolish words that reflect the philosophy and attitudes of the wicked. Verse 32, the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. Verse 21, he borrows, he takes, he seeks what he wants. Verse um, 14, he tries to cast down the afflicted and the needy. Now here in verse 32, he spies on the righteous and seeks to kill him. I mean, we're seeing that with the Pharisees at the end of Acts, right? Over and over and over again, the Jews try to kill Paul. They were wicked. They sought to cast him down. Verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. We see that in the life of Paul, right? He didn't do anything wrong. Verse 34, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. God has not made to us, as His people in the church, specific promises of land, nor should we spiritualize those promises and say that He's merely talking about heaven. He had a specific thing that He promised the people of Israel, and He fulfilled and is fulfilling that promise. But in the same way, that God gives the inheritance of the land to his people, there's a sense in which we share in God's blessing of his people in a passage like 2 Thessalonians 1 where it says that you will have rest, you'll marvel when Jesus comes to be glorified. There's this receiving of an inheritance which we've already been promised, which the Holy Spirit is the down payment of, which Paul was so certain of. He says you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then we come to the verses we started with. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in, his na- in its native soil. There's a big tree behind my uh, house. It's a weed tree. It's a Siberian elm, something like that. It's uh, trying to break my fence. It drops stuff in the backyard. We had to trim some of it off before it fell on certain things. Um, that's the picture of the wicked. Weedy tree, looks strong, looks powerful, has weak branches, is possibly rotten inside. God is going to cast it down. We envy that. We're like, I wish I could be like that. It's strong, it's powerful, it's exalted, everything's going right. Whether the weed is a dandelion or a Siberian elm, God has the power to cast it down. And it says, not only will it be cut off, like, oh, there's the stump, There's the hole in the ground where I dug out the dandelion. Verse 36, he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. You don't even know the spot where it was. That's how complete the judgment of God will be. Verse 37, in contrast, Mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. We look around us and we say, look at that. And God says, no, don't look at that. Look at what I'm going to do. And the next time you look back there, it's going to be gone. And sometimes the next time you look back it could be a thousand years. But that's not that long to God, is it? So don't look at that and be amazed at that and say, I wish I was that. Because a few short decades, years, centuries, millennia, down the line, it's gone. And all of eternity spans out with nothing there but judgment and destruction. Instead, look over here, seemingly weak, seemingly without power, but God says, I will bless it, and eternity stretches out in the light of His glory. Last two verses. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Don't envy the weeds. Don't envy the wicked. God's going to win. You're on His side. You're on the winning side. And He will not forsake His people. Let's go to our time of prayer.